You know, we have a saying in, in my country, when you lost, you don't know where you're going. You have to look back, you know, and, and look back to where you came from, you know, and find inspiration there. You have to trace back your steps. everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Pierre Tayam. He was raised in Senegal, but he is a New York City-based chef, author, restaurateur, social entrepreneur, and culinary ambassador. Pierre is best known for bringing West African cuisine to the global fine dining world. He is also the executive chef and co-owner of Taranga, a fast casual food chain from New York City. His company, Yolele Foods, advocates for small farmers by opening up new markets for crops grown in Africa. And its signature product, Fonio, is found at Whole Foods, Amazon, and other retailers across America. Chef Pierre is on my show because I think he has an interesting perspective on COVID, what's happening to small businesses, but also the climate crisis, and more importantly, leadership. I think it's an awesome conversation and really highlights how an immigrant who got stuck in New York City can truly get stuff done. Want to learn more? Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Pierre Tayam. Hey, Chef Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lori. Well, before we get started today talking about food and working in a restaurant and entrepreneurship and leadership and all that good stuff, why don't you tell us where you're calling in from today and how your family's doing? I'm calling in from the Bay Area in California, and my family is doing great. Uh, It's growing. Just had a baby girl called Naya two months ago. Well, congratulations. That's such a fortuitous thing to happen. Although during COVID, it's got to be a little scary for you. It is scary, but it's also just bringing hope. You know, she's a bundle of joy. And that was quite a a feeling that's not given to many of us during this time. So, you know, I'm definitely embracing it. Yeah, that's really well said. I know that you're based in the Bay Area now. You've also been located in New York City, but that's not where you're originally from. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your origin story? Well, I was born and raised in Dakar, Senegal, West Africa. It's a tiny country on the most western coast of Africa. And I grew up there until my early 20s. I went to university in Dakar. I was a student in physics and chemistry. And I was a very turbulent student in a turbulent year. That year is kind of famous in the Senegalese school culture because we were involved in a, we were very political, the students, to say the least. So we were involved in a series of strikes that ended up in the government shutting down the whole university. And that's what triggered my arrival to New York City, actually. I wanted to figure out a way to continue my studies, and I got a student visa on my way to Ohio. And I was on my way to Ohio that I decided to stop by New York City for the quick visit. I had a friend who lived here, and that quick visit ended up being 30 years. I never left New York because I got robbed after three days arriving in New York. And that's pretty much where the fun (laughs) began. You know, first job that came my way was a restaurant job as a busboy. And that just changed everything for me. 
it's really fun for me to hear that your first job in New York City was a busboy because one of my first jobs was also a busboy, even though I'm not a boy. And I dropped a <laughs> platter full of ketchup and they fired me on the spot. So that ended my career in the restaurant industry. But you, you come from a long line of cooks. I mean, this is in your blood. So tell us a little bit about cooking because long before you were a busboy, you were immersed in a world of food. Absolutely, absolutely. I was immersed in a world of food just by the fact that I grew up in Senegal. And Senegal has a very intense food culture, you know, that's there because we have a, a gender-based activity cooking, you know. So women belong to the kitchen, boys don't belong to the kitchen. So, you know, I grew up just enjoying amazing food that was cooked by my mothers, my aunts, everyone, my sisters. You know, they all learn to cook from an early age and they get very good at it. And we eat fresh food every day, you know, because that's how it goes. My mom used to go to the market every day when we eat fish in Senegal because it's a coastal country. When we eat fish in Dakar every day, it's the fish that was caught today or at the least yesterday. It's never frozen, you know, so, you know, and all kind of seafood and, and all kind of influences to this different influences in our food culture because Senegal geographically is like a hub, you know, located in the most western coast. It becomes like the entrance to Africa and for hundreds of years, many cultures have been entering Senegal and each of them bringing their, their food with them. The Portuguese, mostly the mariners, you know, the Portuguese, the Dutch, they came and we still have Portuguese influence in some parts of Senegal. As a matter of fact, the south of Senegal, where my mother is from, we still speak Portuguese Creole. This is a language my mother would speak to me. Even though the rest of Senegal speak French, you know, the south of Senegal, we still have the Portuguese Creole and we still have some iconic dishes like caldo and pastel. Pastel is a street food in Senegal and it's a street food in Portugal as well. So, you know, we embrace those food cultures. You know, of course, the French brought their food culture and all that, you know, connected with our own very rich food culture because our environment, you know, like the seafood and all the grains and, and of course, the other neighboring countries, each bringing their culture as well, makes it a very, very rich food culture, very intense, you know, our tradition is food is, is amazing, you know, and later we had other cultures from different parts of the world. We have a big Lebanese community and they brought that Middle Eastern food culture in Dakar and we have a Vietnamese community which was very close to me because my parents were friends with the man who would become my godfather, who was also an amazing cook, and he would cook Vietnamese fare, flavors that I only would have at his house. So all those different cultures influenced Senegalese cuisine, you know. You know, dishes that sound so exotic to New York are like you know, very familiar in Senegal, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like name the Vietnamese spring rolls. Uh, you find them at every name-building ceremony in Senegal without Vietnamese spring rolls. It's not a thing, you know, it's just part of the culture. You know, Lebanese shawarma is part of the culture, you know. And of course, you know, the French classics too. So it's a great, you know, it's a great environment to grow up, especially for someone who's going to end up in the kitchen like me. Well, yeah, it's certainly convenient. Yeah. I think about how you have this rich food culture and how you were also a social activist at a young age. And then you arrive in New York City at a time where those skill sets, I think, are particularly needed. I mean, the past 30 years, New York City has been at the hub of social change. It's been at the hub of food. So when you arrived in New York City, did you have any idea that your life in Senegal would be so prescient, like it would be so important to you in determining where you are 30 years later? I kind of did intuition, you know, I had, I kind of realized, you know, we have a saying in, in my country, when you lost, you don't know where you're going. 
you have to look back, you know, and and look back to where you came from, you know, and find inspiration there. You have to trace back your steps. So that's pretty much what happened to me. I arrived in New York City, and three days after my arrival, I was robbed, and I was completely lost, thinking about returning to Senegal, because New York City was really not attractive anymore. You know, it was dirty. It was, you know, late 80s New York City. I'm not sure if you know what it was like. It was a gross crack epidemic. It was like, you know, <laughs> and I was living near Times Square. It was Times Square. It was nothing like what it is now. So, yeah, it, it was pretty scary. And I did think, consider returning because Dakar was uh, charming. It still is a very charming city, seaside and stuff. But, you know, I thought, you know, I could make it, you know, especially when this restaurant opportunity came. That became my first cultural shock. You know, that restaurant was located in the West Village. And as a busboy, you know, I take the plates and bring them back in the kitchen. And the kitchen is like amazing. It's only guys in the kitchen, first of all. And I'm like, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Who are these guys? I mean, (laughs) they're cooking like women, you know, it's like I, I was shocked. But these guys became my first friends, you know, my first friend, the chef in particular, a chef, because he had studied in France, he had lived in France, and he loved practicing his French with me, you know. And he knew of my challenges, he knew that I wanted to make money and get the hell out of New York City and go to Ohio, finish my degree in physics and chemistry. That was my dream, you know, that was the only dream I had. And the chef was like, okay, well, you can take some extra shifts in the kitchen as a dishwasher, you know. And he secretly thought that I was in love with the kitchen, you know. He thought I was just too young to realize that kitchen cooking was my thing because he saw how much time I would spend in the kitchen. And I was looking at those beautiful plates. But, you know, for me, those plates looked to me like the plates I would see in my mother's cookbook. Because, you know, even though I didn't belong in the kitchen as a kid, I was fascinated by this. My mother had a collection of cookbooks with these beautiful pictures, you know. And one in particular was called Le La Rousse Culinaire. That was a French cookbook. And I love the pictures. And now I'm here in this restaurant and I'm seeing picture plates that look like those pictures. And I'm fascinated by them. And the chef, he takes it upon himself. He's like, I'm going to take you like the old school way, you know, just you're going to learn from the bottom up, you know, learn as a dishwasher and start from dishwasher to prep, from prep to garde manger, from garde manger to line cook and and second all the station of the kitchen. And that's really how I went about learning the skills of the kitchen. You know, over the years, I washed way too many dishes, hated that job and then built tons and tons of onions and potatoes <laughs> and gradually you know that's how I learned my life skills you know and this is really the best school is really the bottom up in the kitchen in the, in the restaurant world and then from there Gaudu Marge I started to learn the sources and then revelation I realized that this was chemistry you know this was this all, all the reactions that were happening in the kitchen were I could understand them because that of my background as a student in physics and chemistry it was really it they started to make sense and I started to see a connection to this whole thing. And I really started to love what I was doing. You know, I was like fascinated. I started to read and the chef was recommending books for me. I'm still an avid cookbook reader. But at the time, I started to read the classics and to learn and to be just about cooking. And from there, I worked at that restaurant a couple of years more. And then I had a skill. I went into an Italian restaurant, worked there my way, learning this cuisine, worked in French bistros. And over the years, you know, I've worked in several restaurants until I arrived in this one place in Soho, which is a restaurant that was different than the others. You know, Soho was really starting to boom. 
and that restaurant was doing this kind of Asian, Southeast Asian influence cuisine, you know, that was kind of new in New York. New York was really mostly about French and Italian and Chinese, you know, maybe some Indian. But now Southeast Asian was coming and, and Chef Murray was ahead of his time there. He was really bringing those flavors and we connected really well. And that restaurant was so popular. I got promotion. I became sous chef, then chef de cuisine. And that restaurant, yeah, it's it not only amazing, but that changed everything for me because I was looking at those flavors and they kind of looked at flavors that I was familiar with. I mean, the Southeast Asian, of course, because I had this, my godfather who was Vietnamese, I had, I knew those flavors in Senegal already. But then I started to think, you know, I mean, where is African cuisine in this New York world, you know, this food capital of the world? I don't feel my cuisine, you know, we're part of the world. So this is where I really started to think, you know, if this restaurant can do it here, you know, I think something with our flavors can also do it here, you know. And we have amazing ingredients and amazing food culture. It belongs to New York City. So you're working in this wonderful restaurant in Soho. You know, you're learning, you're growing, you're developing your entrepreneurial skills, and you see an opportunity. You see something that no one else is doing. You just really identify a gap in the marketplace and you think, I can bring my food to market and people will eat it. So what's the next step? I mean, opening a restaurant is complicated. It's messy. You have to get funding. You have to get permits. So how did you even go about achieving this dream? <laughs> That's a good, very good question. I had no idea. I'm like, you know, maybe because I was so naive before I could <laughs> make it, you know. I had no idea how tough it would be, but I just knew I could keep my eyes on the prize. I knew this cuisine had a place here. You know, I had been starting to add just for memory really bringing those flavors into started first with family meal at the restaurant you serve what we call family meal where we serve uh, to the staff you know each employee in the kitchen has his turn of cooking family meal and i would cook african you know west african flavors in the family meal so wait wait tell us what those west african flavors are describe them to us I would do like one of the favorite one was this peanut sauce. You know, peanut sauce is like this really rich, thick, not not like the Asian peanut sauce, kind of like the same consistency, but has an intense umami flavor. Because in Senegalese cuisine, we use a lot of fermentation in our cuisine. Actually, this is something that you would see fermented conch, you would see fermented locust bean, locust bean called dawa dawa. You know, you'd see that dried fish that would come just to bring the flavor of that fermentation inside the inside the sauce. So you'd cook that with a peanut sauce and the peanut sauce would cook slowly with root vegetables like sweet potatoes or cassava or lamb or chicken. You know, it, it just depends. You know, that peanut sauce can go with so many different things. So we cook a yasai. Yasai is a, is a dish that's cooked over the grill, you know, just like chicken or fish that's been marinated with lime and onions, but lots of onions. And those onions also are, are, are cooked in a pot, a cast iron pot, very slowly until they caramelize, you know, with the lime juice. So it has the sweet, the fruitiness of the lime and the sweetness of the caramelized onion. And then the grilled chicken that was on the grill is finished on that sauce. So you have the char from the grill, so it makes it perfect. Very simple, three ingredients, but just so delicious. Anyone who tries yasa is a convert on, on West African food. So 
So I would cook those things and serve it either over rice or over millet couscous or over fonio, you know, when I was able to smuggle some in from Senegal. So those are the things. Well, well, wait a second. I want to talk about fonio because I know that's an important ingredient and it's part of your signature product line. So can you tell us what that is? Well, fonio is an ancient grain. It's probably the oldest cultivated grain in Africa. It's been around for 5,000 years. And it's gluten-free. It's very, very nutritious. It cooks in five minutes. In some parts of Senegal where that fonio culture is, they call it the grain for royalty. You know, they, they serve it to you when you're a guest of honor. They would serve you a dish with fonio. It's very delicate. You know, it's tiny. It looks like couscous. Very delicate. It digests easily. Like I said, it's nutritious with a low glycemic index. So it's a grain that has so much going for it. But in addition, you know, it's excellent for the environment because Fonio grows in poor soil. You know, it's Senegal. If you see the location of Senegal, we are south of the Sahara Desert, you know, south of Mauritania. So it's in a dry area, an area called the Sahel that goes all alongside south of the Sahara from west to east Africa. And Fonio thrives in that area. Nothing else grows there, but Fonio thrives there. And not only it thrives there, but it restores the topsoil because Fonio has deep roots. You know, those deep roots, they have the particularity of storing the carbon dioxide and keeping the water. So when you harvest Fonio, you just Cut, cut the grains from the top, but you leave the roots on the soil and it adds nutrients to the soil. So this is why it's one of the, it's a grain that I champion because I, this is one way to mitigate climate change by promoting the fonio, promoting its agriculture. You know, the farmers have lots of land and they can grow. If they have a market for fonio, they can grow more and more fonio and it slows the advance of the desert because desertification is a serious threat, you know, it's like, and it's creating so much social changes, you know, people are migrating because there's no opportunities, you know, it's getting dry and dry. So anyway, for all those reasons, um, basically this is why what Fonio is, you know, a grain that's great for the environment, that's great for you if you consume it, and that's great for the, the farmer too. So that's what Fonio is. Chef, you mentioned that you used to smuggle it in, and I think that's really interesting because you don't smuggle it in anymore, do you? <laughs> no, not anymore. I now... I have a company called Yolele, and uh, the mission of Yolele is to bring crops like Fonio in connection with farmers, working with smallholder farmers in West Africa, and open markets for their crops. You know, I, it, it came organically for me, Yolele. At first, like you said, I had to smuggle those crops, like I had smuggled so many ingredients. You know, I told you I was in New York City early 90s. There was no such thing as African food and no African ingredients either, because, I mean, you know, many of them, there was no market for them. No one knew where they were. You know, of course, I could still cook my cuisine because some of the ingredients had arrived here through the Middle Passage. You know, when you look at southern cuisine, it's African, West African food. You know, when you look at gumbo and jambalaya and popping joints, all those dishes that are they make great cuisine. So yeah, those are West African dishes. And those ingredients arrived with slavery, with the Middle Passage, you know, okra, rice, you know, eggplants, watermelons, you know, you name it. So those are the basis of our cuisine. But some others didn't make it, like Fonio. And I love Fonio, and I knew that was a grain that would make it here, you know, because you know, with all its properties, and more so now because it's gluten-free and it has all these amino acids that are deficient in most grains. So, you know, I would just bring, whenever I would go to Senegal, I would bring as much ingredients as possible, the one I couldn't find here. And Fonio was definitely one of them I would bring. 
And uh, later on, I was able to turn this into a business. I saw an opportunity as well. You know, I saw the farmers who had the grain, but no market, you know, and they if I could figure out a way to open a market for them, that would just become awesome. You know, they would have a source of income. And New Yorkers and Americans would have a new grain, a way to diversify their diet because it's so important that we diversify our diet. When you look at the global diet, it's so sad. We only have four grains, really. We eat either rice or soy or wheat or corn. You know, and we have so many other grains out there like fonio that are better for us, more nutritious and better for the environment. And the fact that we don't diversify our diet is also causing so much health issues. Much of our health issues are connected to the way we eat. Hey, everybody. Chances are you've spent the past few months cooped up with your family, buried under a relentless news cycle and with work that never seems to switch off. Millions of us worldwide are overworked, exhausted, and trying our hardest, yet not getting the recognition we deserve. It's time for a fix. That's why I wrote my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. It's an essential guide for how to snap out of autopilot and become your own best advocate with candid and new stories and easy-to-adopt steps. I wrote this book for you. I believe in you, and I would be honored if you would pre-order it today. Head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudeman.com forward slash books and pre-order your copy today. I want to talk about something that you keep bringing up, which is that Phonio is really important for the environment. There's this theme of social activism behind your work, which I find to be really interesting. So do you identify as a chef, a restaurateur, as an entrepreneur, as a social activist, and you're a writer, right? When you describe the work that you do, how do you put it out there? What do you do for a living? <laughs> I wear many hats. I mean, I ask myself every day, what do I do for a living? I mean, I wake up and I have to think it every day because every day is a new day and, you know, I take it as it comes. I'm definitely an activist. Like I mentioned to you earlier, when I was a student in Senegal, I was part of the student movement and we were very political. And that's something that's been in me and that never left, you know, this thirst for justice or for just correcting the wrongs. So that's really what helped me to identify this opportunity, you know, being a chef in New York City. So maybe I could, just people would trust me for the food that I bring. So I could maybe help farmers in West Africa, which are the poorest farmers in the world. I mean, they are the poorest people in the world. Imagine when you're a farmer in an area where there's no rain, you know, it's like with climate change in particular, it's getting worse. So, you know, finding opportunities for them and doing it in a way that's, that's wholesome and, and, you know, opening markets here and bringing great products here as well for the consumers who are more conscious of what they are eating. So, yeah, I'm an activist in that way. You know, I'm a chef, obviously, that's where it begins, you know, and uh, being from Senegal, that connects the dots. I'm an author. I write cookbooks and it started also never thought of me as an author until I wrote my first cookbook, which was really the collection of recipes I was taking from my mother on the phone, you know, like oftentimes writing recipes, bringing them to the restaurant as special and gradually that's how it started. And then I realized that I had 
cookbook in my hands. <laughs> and I, my friend Adam Bartos, who is this amazing photographer, decided to travel to Senegal with me. And we spent time with the women of my family. And the book was about that. The first cookbook was about the food that influenced my cuisine. You know, we traveled all the way to the village to where my family is from. And it was a tribute to the women of my family and to the women of Africa in general, because they are the ones without whom there would not be any of the food that I'm preparing because they're the one who kept that tradition and pass it down and pass it to me until I took it to the international. So all my cookbooks are pretty much a homage to them. The first one was about them. The second one was about the source of that cuisine, where that food came from, you know. So I traveled and met the producers and the farmers and the fishermen and giving to all these people a chapter in the book, you know, and presenting their challenges and, of course, with recipes around the product that you know, they would be talking about. So that's how, you know, you read the book, you would see it's very political and that my activist side comes, you know, you would see how the colonization has influenced our cuisine, you know, in a way that you don't see Fonio, for instance, in cities like Dakar, you know, because we're still like thinking, and you would see baguettes and, and croissants in every street corner of Dakar. I mean, great baguettes, you know, but we don't grow wheat. Our farmers don't grow, farmers don't grow wheat, but we, we still serve great baguettes, great croissants, you know. And that's just because we've been colonized this way and we think what comes from the best is worst, you know. And you would see in the, our national dish in Senegal is prepared with broken rice, you know, and broken rice story is, is fascinating because it came because of that same French colonial past. The French colonized us and they colonized the Vietnamese, right? And in Vietnam, they were growing this rice. So this rice, the Vietnamese would process it and you'd have the debris of rice, right? After they processed the rice, the leftover, the debris that the Vietnamese used to keep for animal feed and for their poultry and all that. So that's what the French took to Senegal because they wanted the Senegalese farmers to grow peanuts at the time. So it was very political. Colonization is like interesting. It was a business. And they brought this broken rice and the Senegalese, of course, took the broken rice and they turned it into this amazing dish that became our national dish. It's this tiny broken rice. It looks like couscous. And uh, we make this amazing uh, which is a jollof rice now and that became this popular dish all over West Africa, actually. But we still import the broken rice, which is a, a substandard rice. And we look down at our own products, you know, like Fonio or our whole grain rice in the south of Senegal, for instance. So interesting. Yeah, how food, the intersection of food and politics is so closely tied. And it also makes me think about today's chef because we've got restaurants almost like canaries in the coal mine. They're on the front lines of what's happening with COVID right now. I mean, before the world fell apart, we could see the effects of the pandemic in the restaurants today. And I wonder what you see in terms of politics and food in the United States. What's the connection? What's happening? And are you optimistic about the restaurant industry here? Or what, how do you feel? Well, you know, I am. Uh, I think it's in my DNA to be optimistic. I've been optimistic all my life. You know, it's like when even when I was completely broke after my robbery and stuff. I was like, uh, still see, I still saw a light. And I still see a light, you know. I've been, you know, my restaurant in New York City, when this thing happened and they decided to close the restaurants, it took me just a moment and I decided, no, I wouldn't close, you know. I would just figure out a way to do deliveries, you know, for different reasons, you know. So, I mean, I have amazing people in the kitchen and they just needed this job to begin with. It started with that, you know, they need this job. 
Secondly, you know, Teranga is part of the name of the restaurant. It's part of the community. You know, we play a role in that community. We're located in the Africa Center in Harlem. And we have regulars who just relied on us for their food. You know, it was something that I just thought we have to figure out a way to stay open. And we just stayed open for for deliveries and, and pickups first. And then we realized that we have a hospital just a couple blocks from us. We reached out to them and said, let's figure out a way to serve food to the first responders, you know, because first responders were like there to the, our heroes. So that's how we became, you know, we created this whole community. We turned the restaurant into focusing on the needs of the community. The first responders became a big hit. And we realized also that there were kids in Harlem who relied on schools to have their school lunch, you know, and now there was no schools. And they lived in shelters. So that became just organically the place we went to. You know, we started to serve the shelters. We collaborated with Harlem Grown, which is an amazing organization in Harlem. And we were bringing our food to the shelters, to the kids in the shelters, and our food to the first responders and revisiting our menu. So all this to say that, you know, the restaurant of COVID has to be a restaurant that really consider the situation and the community, you know, because the community needs healing and food is an amazing way to bring that healing. I don't know if we are ever going to return to the way we were, you know, the restaurant world, the way it was, especially a certain type of restaurant that was really very elitist and unfortunately got hit very hard by this pandemic actually because they didn't have the reflex that we have, the flexibility that we had as a fast casual Teranga were able to avoid some of the pitfalls and better prepare to face some of the challenges. You know, it got really hit hard actually. We were about to open two more locations before the pandemic. We were about to open Midtown and open Brooklyn. And Midtown, we still don't know when it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, we decided to open Brooklyn. And we are opening Brooklyn at the end of this month. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a challenge. It's a challenging situation. But I think, you know, it's very important that we see a future. I, mean, I don't know how a world without restaurant can be. Actually, the restaurant is an important role in the community. It's impossible to think that we will not be there. And that's for this faith in, in our future that I just decided that we need to move forward. And we, we're doing it carefully, obviously. We're doing it with thinking about everything. One of the ways we plan on growing is to consider even the, the ghost kitchen situation, which is having a kitchen centralized where everything would be cooked and prepared until the last step and bring it to the location the different locations. So that would be also another way to expand a bit faster. Wow, interesting. Yes, I really see the COVID-19 as we could turn into an opportunity. You know, I mean, all crises are also about hidden opportunities. And, and I think that could be an opportunity to, to accelerate our growth. And that's, uh, that's where we're going. Well, I have one final question as we wrap up the conversation. You know, you are more than just an activist, an entrepreneur. I mean, what you are, Chef Pierre, in my mind, is a leader, right? And this moment requires leadership. And not only are you a leader, but you're a leader who has lived in multiple countries. You've had experiences with a lot of different cultures. And so I think you have this really interesting perspective on what's happening in the world right now. So I wonder if you have a message out there to people who are a little lost, a little worried about the world right now and are looking for leaders out there. Like, what do you want to say about this moment that we're living in? Thank you for putting me out there. But it's a scary moment for everyone. But like I said, just on my last question, 
these moments are also opportunity for growth, you know, and that's how we have to see it. You know, this is not a moment to shrink. It's a moment to actually see what was not working in the system and get rid of it. And we have to do it as a whole and we have to do it as individuals. But together is the way to go and, and be stronger. I'm not sure if that's helpful, but I think that's really the way we have to, to see it. I started the interview talking about this saying in Senegal where when we are lost, when we are confused, we need to trace back our steps and correct what was wrong and right. And, and that's a moment like this, you know, look back and find inspiration in how we face, how we face challenges, how our forefathers face challenges. Those challenges are part of evolution. They come and they go. And this one will also go. Really well said. Well, Shafir, it's a joy and a pleasure to talk to you today. And I can't wait to try Fonio. You know, that's on my list for this weekend. So I'm excited to do some cooking this weekend. Yeah, yolele.com. You can get Fonio directly in your house. And of <laughs> course, you can go to Whole Foods and anywhere, all the supermarkets, natural supermarkets around the country. Well, I'm so excited. You know, COVID has presented me with the opportunity to work on my cooking skills. And so while this has been a terrible time, at least my cooking is getting a little bit better. And I think my husband appreciates that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you be well. And thanks again for being a guest on the show. And you, Lori. Take care. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chef Pierre. Boy, I love this man so much. And it's been my joy to learn about Fonio. And you can head on over to my Instagram account at instagram.com forward slash L Rudiman to see me learning how to cook with this ancient grain. Also, if you want to learn more, you can head on over to laurierudiman.com forward slash punkrockhr-132 for a PDF takeaway of this show. And as always, I'm super appreciative that you listen. I hope you enjoyed the show today. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.